Luke chapter 15, if you have a copy of God's Word, Luke chapter 15. come again to this portion of God's Word, and I want to read from verse 1. Last Lord's Day, we looked at the opening seven verses. We're coming to verses 8, 9, and 10 before we, in the will of the Lord, next week we'll look at the aspect of the prodigal that comes into view from verse 11. So let us read the opening ten verses And let us hear the word of the Lord. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. He spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house, And seek diligently till she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Amen. May God bless His word to our hearts in the reading of it. And as we come to preach it by His grace, we will also receive it with profit. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord for His help. God, we thank Thee for Thy seeking love. We thank Thee that Thou art not in the business of looking upon us with pity and standing afar off, or as in the parable told by the Lord of the Good Samaritan passing by on the other side. We're thankful for a God who has intervened in the lives of men and women and boys and girls. Lord, we pray that Thou wilt continue to show thy grace in intervening in our lives. We need thy divine intervention. We need thy help. And we pray that we might ever lift our eyes to the hills from whence cometh our help. We pray that we would be very quick to seek thee. We think of the psalmist who said, early will I seek thee. Help us to be like that, not to come to God as a last resort, We're thankful, Lord, that there's mercy with the Lord, and we pray that those here tonight that do not know that mercy, those that are not aware of thy mercy, those that have a sense of their guilt and shame may realize that they no longer need to stand in that place. They can come to Christ. They can seek Him. They can call upon Him, and He will hear their cry. So give help. Come Forgive our many sins, wash us, and come by the Spirit to help us to hear and receive the Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we said last time, Luke chapter 15 brings to our view the response of our Lord Jesus to the criticism of the scribes and Pharisees. Looking again at verse 2, the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And that then begins the the whole kind of following uh, parable that comes from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ addressing this very issue. What does it mean as he hears them criticizing him in this way? What is his response as they look at him spending time with the dregs of society? They would not be seen with 
any prostitutes, tax collectors, or other categories of sinners. They had no time for certain types of people. And in some ways, that's understandable. God does not will that His people spend time and linger in the presence of people while they're engaging in awful sin. But our Lord Jesus, while He was not guilty of engaging in the sins of those that He was reaching and those that grieved the Pharisees and the scribes as they saw these tax collectors who were seen like as if they betrayed their nation and their people, He was in their presence to change their lives. And change their lives He did. I couldn't help but think as I was preparing this week of the testimony of Rosaria Butterfield. And if you've not heard her testimony or read her book, uh, I encourage you to do so because it's, it's an eye-opener. And of course, there's one angle of looking at how God saved her and so on. But as I'm thinking about it is, is in relation to the Reformed Presbyterian minister, Ken Smith, who spent the time First of all, responding, I think it was in a newspaper or some other thing that drew, drew her attention, dealing with something she had written, and then inviting her into his home along with his wife to eat with them once a week over, I think it was two years if I remember correctly, two years every week she was in the home. And in that environment, he would address uh, the questions she had and matters of Scripture and pray and so on and so forth. And, and she's living actively in a sinful lifestyle. And if you know anything about her life and how she was living, I, I, think, I think we have to be honest, there are many Christians that would struggle, struggle to bring someone of her character into their home and invest so much time in addressing someone of that nature. You, you can see the story for yourself. She describes her, her sinfulness, her way of life, uh, and you, you can just, I, I think the question has to be asked, would we do it? I, I, I think many of us would struggle. And in fact, we would find ourselves understanding why the Pharisees and scribes felt as they did. What are you doing spending time with someone like that? So I think it's, it's convicting. It's convicting if we have been taught or have drifted into a condition that distances us from sinners. If we struggle to be in the presence of people that we know are living in sin, it is heart-searching. We don't. We are light. Light makes its biggest impact in the darkness. And we don't shine as lights if we're not in places of darkness. Now, I'm not saying, again, I'm not advocating going to bars and drinking with people to try and show that you're at their level. I'm not advocating engaging in the things that they're engaging in or going to the places where they engage in those things. But our Lord put Himself in the place where He was constantly engaging with the kinds of people the religious leaders of His day wouldn't look near. So the chapter then begins to develop this, this whole aspect. Christ is, a, is answering the accusation. He is presenting it. And the last time... In verses 3 through 7, we saw him depicted as a shepherd. Shepherd is not used in the verses, but it seems to be implied. We noted five things. His purpose, he goes after that which is lost, verse 4. His perseverance, verse 4, he, he does that. He goes after until he find it. His practice, verse 5, laying it on his shoulders, carrying it home. His possession, they are his sheep, verse 6. And then the pleasure that is described in verses 6 and 7, the joy that he has in finding that which is lost. Now, in verses 8 through 10, they are very similar, very similar. And I'm not going to, I mean, a lot of what was said last week would apply in these verses, so I'm, I'm not going to do that. Much of it applies, as I say. But Christ is addressing two key matters here. It is why he does what he does. 
and how men should respond. Why he does what he does and how men should respond. Those two things. It's not just dealing with, I am going after the lost because I care for them and I see the value of them just as the shepherd sees the value of one sheep out of a hundred. Or just as the woman finds value in the one coin out of the ten. He sees value in them and he pursues them until he finds it. That's what he sees. But the other aspect of it is to address their response to his work. They are murmuring. And he is underlining this is the wrong response. You should be joyful. You should be rejoicing. Those in heaven rejoice. And if we pray that the things that happen on earth, that His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then we should rejoice as heaven does when Christ pursues the lost. So like the shepherd, the woman that we read of in verses 8 and 9 and 10, these verses we're looking at tonight, she also has purpose. We read that she seeks diligently. She also has perseverance till she find it. There's possession as well. She claims the lost coin as her own. And there's pleasure, verse 10. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. So what is different? What is different? I'm going to remind you of what I said last time as I think this is, as I'm seeing it, and I know that there's not much. There was one commentary I read that sort of touched on this. Touched on. Didn't really go down this way, but touched on this aspect of what is going on here in Luke 15. One parable, threefold. He is addressing various aspects, but it's all really pulling together the same ideas, addressing the same themes and truths. And what you have in the first two is reflected in the third and final one. So in the first two, you have, first of all, Christ going out into the world to seek that which wanders away, gets away from what you might term home, gets away from home, wanders away into dangerous places. He goes after that sheep that is lost. In the second one, you have then something that's lost at home, the coins lost in the home. It didn't have to wander away, didn't, go, didn't get lost when she went for a walk or on a journey and drop it somewhere. In the home, it is lost. And when you come then to the third one, you have both. You have one son that gets lost in the world and you have another that's just as lost even though he stays at home. So that's how I'm seeing what our Lord is addressing here. And so when we come to verses 8, 9, and 10, he is turning his attention to a particular category of sinner. It is the sinner that is found in the elder brother, the one that stays at home, the religious type, the one that keeps going to the synagogue, keeps visiting the temple at the assigned seasons, engaging in religious worship, but is just as lost. And our Lord, He is showing, and don't miss this, I'm after them all. I am after them all. Sometimes those that are out in the world when they get converted, they actually become a little proud and imagine that Christ has a particular love just for people who are way down in the dregs of society and are guilty of all sorts of sins, and He has a special and particular place for them that is different. It's a higher kind of love because we were so low and He loved us and pulled us out of that. You people on the clean side of the broad road, you don't understand. That's a form of pride. Christ levels the playing field. Where you find these sinners may be different, but their value is just the same. And He is after them just the same, seeking that they may be saved, recovered, brought from darkness into light. So tonight we have titled, as we said last time, Christ searching for sinners in the world, now we have Christ searching for sinners at home. And I use at home rather than in the church or in the synagogue or in the temple, whatever, just because that's, that's the context, how he tells it. It's at home, this woman is sweeping her house. And 
all that happens is around the home. So, first note with me, Christ's illustration of religious sinners. He illustrates it here in the verses that are before us. Now, often when you read, or, yeah, when you read, as well as when you hear it preached, certainly I've heard it preached many times this way, when a preacher comes to Luke 15, he sees the, the Trinity in view. So, the first part of the parable, where the man goes out after the one lost sheep, there's Christ as the shepherd. And you come to the third one with the prodigal, there you have the Father who's looking, God the Father is looking and willing to embrace sinners as they return home. And so they deduce then that the middle one is the Holy Spirit. He is the one engaged in the shining the light and searching and so on for sinners and, and endeavoring to, to do His work in conversion. So I hear it preached that way, but I am not sure that is the intention at all. Uh, I, I think in each case, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is under assault. He is the one who is being attacked. He, it's His work that is under questioning. And so he who is going after sinners, spending time with sinners, is the one who goes after the sheep, he is the one who seeks the coin, and he is the one also that's looking for the Son to return and welcomes and embraces him as well. Now, of course, in saying that, immediately you might think, well, Christ depicting himself as a woman? Uh, Maybe that's a problem. Well, I mean, if you depict the Holy Spirit as a woman... Uh, I mean, you're, you're still left with the same problem. It doesn't help any. And the fact of the matter is, Christ depicted Himself in all sorts of ways. He, 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 he would indicate some aspect of His work in various fashions. We, we not long dealt with the fact He, he calls Himself like, like a hen gathering her chicks. Or, or we have the Apostle Paul who speaks of Himself being like a nursing mother in regard to the Thessalonians. So, using this kind of language is not unusual. It doesn't say anything that, that Jesus is a woman or anything like that. It's just taking a common known image that those that could hear Jesus could very easily depict in their minds and making the application from that familiar scene. Others I, I read of uh, see the woman as the church, and the church then is modeling the Lord Jesus who went after the sheep. Now the church is going after a lost coin. But again, if the woman is the church then she is the church on earth because she's evangelizing. And if she is the church on earth, then who is she inviting to rejoice with her? Can't, we, we can't really invite the angels in a meaningful way to rejoice with us. Uh, not like this. Nor are we inviting the world to rejoice with us. And since it's the church, then, I mean, who else are you left with? You, you know, it just doesn't make sense. So it's Jesus. Jesus is the one. He is, he is depicting himself as in this scene, this common scene in the first century of a woman in the details that we have here before us in these verses. And he is focusing, as I've said, with a particular type of people in mind. He has gone from illustrating the sheep that wanders, and very easily, these are, these are the sinners, these are the tax collectors. They, you think of Levi, he grew up in a religious environment, he no doubt knew his Old Testament relatively well, and yet he, he is drawn by the appeal of financial success and so on and betrays his nation, becoming a tax collector. It was the case as well. These are individuals that were despised in their generation. And you have the prostitutes and other sorts of individuals that were not thought of very highly at all at that time and for obvious reasons. But now he turns his attention to another class. And as I say, he is, this, this is the elder brother. The one who never left home. The one who is proud of the fact that he is never engaged in the activity of his brother. Christ is turning his attention, whether it's obvious to them in verses 8, 9, and 10, I don't know. But I think as he builds into the, the, the two sons, it becomes very, very clear. and would have been clear to everyone what it is that he is saying. And once again, he uses a form of rhetorical questioning designed to address the conscience. Verse 8, Either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? It's a question. It's an interrogative here designed for them to 
to sort of think and put themselves in this place and, and, and recognize the truth of what he is saying. And this is done in both instances. Verse 4 is the same. Verse 8 is the same. And so what Christ is doing here is making the answer obvious. He is asking it in a way of a question in a fashion so that the answer is obvious. Everyone knows, yes, you would do that. If a man had only a hundred sheep, not significant flock, then he would go after the one that's lost. When he brings him in that night and realizes one is lost, he'll go and seek to find it. If a woman has ten coins and she loses one, it's understandable that she will apply herself to seek for that coin. They're all in agreement with what he is saying. So as he is presenting it in this way with this question, they're, they're having to agree with what he is saying. In a sense, he is answering the bigotry of their hearts. He's causing them to pause over the very things that they struggled with as they watched them, as they watched him live his life. And so they're, they're opposing his pursuit of sinners, and they're blinded by their bigotry. They're, and and they, they're really being stirred. I think this plays into the fact they're murmuring. They're murmuring because as, as Pilate knew was true when they eventually get Jesus to Pilate, it says, and we'll find it in this gospel, God willing, when we get there, he said he knew, Pilate knew that for envy they had delivered him. That was the reason. They had delivered him out of envy. You see this here. I think deep down they knew that there was something about Christ that made them feel guilty about their own inactivity toward men. There was something in them that recognized the attractiveness of his life and the influence that he was having that they could not say they were having. But instead of being convicted and confessing their sins, instead of saying he's doing the work that we should be doing, they attack him. Such is their indifference to the souls of men. You see, these men understood the value of a sheep or a coin, but they didn't understand the value of a soul. The Son of God who sought for Adam in the beauty of the garden seeks for sinners in the blackness of a fallen world, and the religious leaders don't get it. So, this is how he illustrates, Christ's illustration. We have also his view, his view of these religious sinners. We get to the verse and begin to break this down a little. Many of the commentators point out that the value of a silver coin was equivalent to a day's work. And I was reading that, you know, a day laborer. We have Christ telling parables about that, someone who goes and seeks for work on a day-by-day basis, and he gets a silver coin at the end of the day. And I was reading that and thinking, well, hang on a minute, just hold up. If it's a day's work, we, we all are joyful when we find money. You know, when you stick your hand in the pocket and there's $20? I mean, it's sort of like you can have that smile on your face. Oh, cool. <laughs> you found a $20 that you didn't know you had. Everyone likes that, right? But you don't go to the neighborhood and say, rejoice with me, I found $20 or whatever. I mean, you, you don't celebrate in that way. So I'm reading this and thinking, hang on, Why? Why then is there such grounds for community celebration? So some commentators point out that when a Jewish girl married, she would wear a headband of ten silver coins to signify that she was now a wife. It would function like a, a wedding band or an engagement ring of sorts. And so to lose one of them would be devastating because of its, its kind of what it is, the value, the, the sentimentality the attachment to it. Others state that it was part of the diary and it holds then sentimental value there as well. But I don't know. I mean, there's not really a lot that I can find that establishes these things as fact. In fact, one commentator says that historically the idea of the band with the ten coins uh, can't be established historically. So did that actually happen? We don't know. 
Alternatively, she was just very, very poor and living in a day when bartering was the norm, you kept your money as long as you could. That was preserved and it was for specific seasons and, and needs. So you're always hiding your money and when you went to get something you needed, you would barter. You would use what you had, what you could make, bread, animals, wool, whatever, fabrics. You, you would barter with that to get what it is that you needed and you keep the money. And so for someone who was poor and would normally barter for her needs, this every coin mattered. Everything she had mattered, and it may simply be that. So Christ then uses this illustration. He uses this, this scene that would have been common for those in his audience where a woman having ten pieces of silver, that's all she has, if she lose one piece, lights a candle, sweeps the house, seeks diligently, until she finds it. So, in using this coin, here Christ gives a view of what sinners are, and, and specifically religious sinners, those who stay at home, not those who give themselves to all sorts of riotous living, those who stay within the home environment. We see firstly here their condition. Their condition. They're seen as a coin. This is how sinners are depicted. And in, in looking at that, there's some things we can conclude. Now, I think we have to be careful. Again, some see, well, every coin has an image stamped upon it. That reflects how they have the image of God in them, and that's their value. I don't know if that's what the Lord is getting at, you know, uh, the image of God and man and so on. But I think there are other aspects of their condition that can be seen from a coin. First of all, they're lifeless. They're lifeless. Coins are lifeless. Inanimate objects. There's no life in them. And in so depicting sinners this way, this, this is how these, these religious people are in the view of our Lord. They are lifeless. They have no life at all. They are in this condition where they may engage in spiritual activity, but they do not possess spiritual life. In addition, they are helpless. The coin can do nothing to save itself, to find itself, to rescue itself. Again, being recovered is impossible if it's up to the coin itself just like the religious sinner. They're also purposeless. The, the, the coin has a purpose. Now it's lost. It's lost all of its purpose. It can not achieve anything that it might have been used for potentially. And so it is for the religious sinner. So you think of it in this way, and you, you get an image of, of how the, the condition of the religious sinner, who imagines these Pharisees, these scribes, they imagine themselves to have life, to, to have power, to have purpose, and Jesus saying, no, no, you don't. Not only their condition, you have their environment. We are told that it's here in this home, and it's lost within the home, and so she sweeps the house, seeking diligently until she finds it. Now, the home of the poor in Israel in that time was, was very simple. Very small, straightforward, dark floors, if there was a window at all, it would let very little light in. So even during the day, there wasn't much light that would come into the home. And so obviously then, she has to do something to help her find the coin. She lights a candle, a primitive lamp of some description, as she looks around the house to find this coin. This is like the environment that Jesus came into. This is the most religious nation on the planet. The most devout nation with regard to religion on the planet. A people that feel their religion deeply in their very identity, not just something they do, but something they are. And Christ comes in, and the vast majority are dead. Even in the temple, even in the synagogues, they are dead. They have no life. They are in darkness. John tells us in John 1 verse 5 that the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. This, this, is, this is what Christ comes into, just darkness. But this is Jerusalem. This is Judea. These are the religious. Some of the most 
devoutly religious people on the planet live right here, and yet Christ comes in, and it's just darkness. The environment is one of darkness. And what he faces continually through his ministry is just darkness. He, even when he's in Capernaum and he begins his ministry, back in Luke chapter 4, what's the response? It is one of darkness. That Sabbath day when they open the Scriptures and he says it's fulfilled in your ears, it's met with darkness. They don't want what he has to say. And his whole life then is one of confronting constant darkness. The home then, this dark, Eastern home of the first century of a poor woman signifies the dark condition of Israel when Christ comes into the world, surrounded by darkness. So that's the environment. You see, their condition, their environment, we also their value. Despite what we have said, they are depicted as a coin that is worth looking for. Look at it. She seeks diligently. She's doing everything in her power She puts the light on, she sweeps the house, she keeps searching until she finds it. And so this reminds us, when we're looking at the Pharisees, when we're looking at the scribes, and we see them in their hardness and indifference and evil and corruption, that Christ, Christ sees value in them. Do not forget that it is over Jerusalem that he weeps. That's where the center of religious activity was. It's Jerusalem. And it's over Jerusalem he sobs. And he longs all that it could have been different if you'd only come, if you'd only responded. Christ did not live his ministry looking for opportunities to criticize the religious. He had his harsh words. They were needed. But he wasn't endeavoring to be harsh for the sake of being harsh. He wasn't endeavoring to ostracize them just for the sake of ostracizing them. They ostracized themselves by the response to him, by the hardness of their hearts. But he still sees value in them. Christ understands what they did not. They could not see value in the souls of the publicans and sinners nor could they even really value their own soul. But Christ values both. You remember the value of your soul. It's the most precious thing you have. You boys and girls need to learn that. That you're more than your material body. You have a soul, boys and girls. You have a soul. You have an inner part of you. You can't see with the eye, but it's very real. And Jesus says, what should it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You have to understand the value of your soul. Jesus saw it. He saw it. Yes, it's like that sheep that needs to be rescued. That coin that needs to be found. And he looks at you boys and girls. He sees your soul and he sees the need for you to be rescued as well. And so he's put you in a Christian family. And he has put you in a Christian church where you hear the wonderful message of the love of Jesus going to the cross to die that your sins might be forgiven. Christ understood their value. Thirdly, Christ's ministry to religious sinners. We have seen his illustration, his view of them now, his ministry to them. What is his ministry to them? Two things. First, he brings the truth that they need. He brings the truth that they need. What does she do? She lights a candle. Obviously, she does. They know what kind of a home a woman like this would live in. It's dark. There's no way that she can see clearly. So, she must light a candle. She must give light to the environment. This speaks of Christ's ministry of truth to his generation in his day. This is what the Word of God is. It's a lamp onto our feet. It's a light onto our path. Proverbs 6.23, the commandment is a lamp. The law is light. Psalm 19, verse 8, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. This is what the Word of God does. It enlightens 
Further, let's not forget, he not only brought the Word of God, which brings light to the soul, he is. He came as the light of the world, John 8, 12. So he's not just giving words of light, he is himself light to men. And what's interesting when you read when he called himself the light of the world in John 8, 12, where was he when he said that? Where was he when he says, I am the light of the world? He was standing in the temple. He's standing in the presence of the son who stays at home. The sinners that have all their religion, but they're still lost. And he stands before them and he points to himself. And he is bringing the religious of his day, the religious sinners, bringing them to see and think of things they had never considered before. Never a man spake like this man, they said of him. And a nation that prided itself on having the light is standing in darkness. And the light comes in and invades the darkness. Many of them are resistant to it, but some of them are influenced by it. We know that thou art a teacher come from God. Our Joseph of Arimathea, powerful, right up there among the, the highest of them. And he knows the light has come. If the religious leaders have been doing their job correctly, the nation would not be in the darkness that it was. But as it was, they contributed to the darkness. If they had been doing what they ought to have been doing, then the nation would have been prepared for their Messiah, wouldn't they? They would be deliberating on Him and preaching about Him and teaching about Him in such a fashion that the whole place is ready to receive Him, but it's not. And it's so calloused, so hardened, so darkened that the Lord appoints a prophet, John the Baptist, as a forerunner to kind of break up the ground, to make way for the arrival of Messiah. Because the shepherds in the land... The religious leaders at the time were not making way for the Messiah. Their hearts had become so hard. I mean, isn't it sad? No doubt they they often turn to messianic passages. There's no doubt whatsoever. A little like we said this morning. An anticipation of the Messiah, like the Hebrews. Anticipating Him. Hearing Him being dwelt upon, taught the anticipation of his arrival. And yet when he comes, instead of being filled with joy, they murmur and criticize and eventually put him to death. So Christ brings the truth that they need. He brings the light. He comes with light. That's what's needed in a religious environment. I think of various stories I have heard of ministers standing in in places of worship that have gone liberal and they never hear the gospel, they never hear the word of God, and all of a sudden they're confronted with truth in a way that they have never heard before. And of course, some balk at it. They, they're, they're, they're livid and angry at what they're hearing because in that message is the reality that they're sinners and they need to be saved. But others, their hearts are melting. They're, they're like, where's this been all my life? Dr. Paisley certainly had many stories of going to places, sometimes not very good churches, and preaching in them, and (laughs) God working powerfully. I remember him telling one story about going to a Methodist church, and said one of the deacons was standing outside smoking when when he got there, and he gets up and he preaches, and he knows that they're just, this this group of people never hear the gospel, and he, he thunders the gospel. And I, I can't remember, there were like, you know, 11, 12, 13 responded to the preaching of the Word that morning. Just, just powerful stuff. But he not only brings the truth that religious sinners need, he removes the lies that religious sinners believe. 
This is the sweeping, isn't it? He not only lights a candle, this is, this is him coming, shining the light in, bringing light into the darkness of the nation, bringing light into the darkness of his day and generation, but he also comes to sweep. You know, they had the just basic flooring. They didn't have, you know, hardwood floors or luxury vinyl tile or whatever. You know, they didn't have any of that. There's these rough floors that would be dusty. And again, it's dark. And so the coin might be under dust or under some other kind of dirt or debris that's there. And she's sweeping. And you can imagine it. I was actually thinking about it. And this may be stretching things a little too far. So don't, don't run and preach a sermon on this. But I was thinking about just the the imagery of her sweeping that and the, the, the jangle of the coin when finally she might touch it and sweep it. And I thought, is, is that not like a little like the cry of a sinner? It's like that, that jangle of the coin. There's the soul. That's all he can do. He can jangle. <laughs> he gives this kind of tinkling sound. That's, that's the sinner as the Lord begins to stir in his providence in his heart. And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he reaches down and picks him up. I don't think that was necessarily in the Lord's mind, but I like the image of it. So she sweeps, sweeping away the dirt in the house. And there was a lot of dirt in Israel, a lot of dirt in the temple, a lot of dirt in the synagogue, all sorts of falsehood and lies and deception and hardness and pride. And it needed to be swept. And this is part of what Christ's ministry came to do for such people like this. He came and confronted them. He exposed the corruption in the house, as it were, right at home, in Israel, in Jerusalem. That was part of what his half-brothers wanted him to do. Go to Jerusalem. Go, go to Jerusalem. And that tells us, for neither did his brethren believe in him. And so you have all sorts of ways of understanding why were they sending him to Jerusalem? Because they don't believe in him. So they don't believe in him. Why do they want him to go? Either they want him to go to the place where he will be tested most rigorously. So let's see whether he really is what he claims to be. Put him right in Jerusalem. Or maybe they want to put him in a place of danger. Or perhaps something else. Maybe go there and they can go on the coattails of his fame. Or some other reason that they may have had in their hearts. Whatever the case, he went into Jerusalem and he said things and did things. On one occasion we read of the, the, the temple police, the guards, and they're sent to arrest him, but his speech is such that they don't want to touch him. They don't want to go near him. He was making such a difference. He was sweeping house, as it were. And this is what the Word of God does. Not just through the ministry of Christ, but generally when the Word comes, it sweeps. It sweeps, it does. And I'll tell you, beloved, we need it. We need the Word of God and its sweeping influence. Oh, blessed light that shines upon the cross and tells us there the Lamb of God is dying for sinners. It's wonderful. But we also need the sweeping influence that sees the dirt and debris and the corruption and the pride and the hypocrisy of our hearts sees the things that need to be dealt with and confessed. It's a blessed work that our Lord engages in when He does that. He cleanses the environment. He exposes false teachers. He exposes false religious practice. I mean, you think of the Sermon on the Mount. That entire sermon, what is it? It's setting things straight, isn't it? I mean, that's really what the Sermon on the Mount is. It is setting it straight. Ye have heard that it has been said. But I say unto you, let's set it straight. You think adultery is just engaging in it? I tell you, even the look of lust. You've committed adultery in the heart. He's setting it straight. He is cleansing. He is sweeping. They're saying all these things. All sorts of aspects in his ministry where he's dealing with wrong ideas and assumptions and all the rest of it. He sweeps. He sweeps it all away. But perhaps it's most greatly illustrated in the temple, isn't it? The cleansing of the temple. You read of in John chapter 2, that first cleansing. And you, you, you read of him going in there on that occasion. And you start asking yourself, well, why is he doing this? 
Why does he do it at the beginning of his ministry? Why does he do it again at the end of his ministry? What's he, what's he doing? And there's lots of things that could be talked about with regard to that. But at the very least, he is sweeping house. He is sweeping house. The, temp, the specific area that he is standing in and dealing with is a part called the court of the Gentiles, where, where those, let's, let's, let's put it this way, those in the wilderness, the sheep that were lost, those way out there could come in and be proselytes and accepted and, and engage in some aspect of Jewish worship in the temple. It was also the place where prayer was to be offered for the nations. My house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. That this is a place where you're praying for the lost to be gathered in. And, you're, and it gets right to the point of what we're dealing with. These people didn't understand the value of a soul. They did not have concern for anyone but the inner circle. And so when they had an opportunity to line their pockets through changing money from foreigners who would come and need their, their money changed to the right currency, let's set it up in the court of the Gentiles. Let's make it a place of commerce instead of communion. And the Lord was grieved. You, you, you don't get it. You have no love for souls. You cannot see the need of men. This place where you're to cry and weep and beg for the conversion of sinners, of the extension of the kingdom across the nations, you've turned into a den of thieves. And he was mad. Righteous indignation. He cleanses. This is what he does. This discriminatory aspect of Christ's ministry is key. It was key. People could begin to see the difference. They, they realized, well, they say this, but he says that. And they had to weigh it up and make a, make a judgment call. Purifying. I mean, it happened in the Protestant Reformation too, didn't it? I mean, that, that's really what happened. Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, all the rest of them. They began to sweep house. They began to speak in such a way as sweeping house. The Catholic Church has gotten so corrupt, the movement wasn't initially to trying to establish a new movement. It was trying to, to recover what had been lost. And so they're trying to sweep house. Cleanse. Get rid of all the garbage. All the religious activity and the lack of spiritual life. See, that's an awful thing that we said of this church. There they are. They, they engage in religious activity, but they have no spiritual life. What an indictment. Beloved, don't let it be said of... There's only so much you can do for the whole church. There's a lot you can do for yourself. Make sure it's not true of you. You have all sorts of religious activity, but no spiritual life. It is life that Christ has come to bring. So, our Lord sweeps. He sweeps. Does this wonderful work of cleansing, and He's making way for a more pure Israel. And His ministry becomes crucial in the establishment of who the true people of God are in the world, they are not those who say, we be of Abraham's seed. They are those who have believed in the Son. The conclusion then is, is similar to verse 7. You see her, verse 9, when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me. For I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Again, I say to you, both, both of these aspects, the lost sheep, the lost silver coin, they're not just telling you about what the Lord Jesus is engaging in and what His work is, reaching sinners. And He, he owns it. This man receiveth sinners. He says, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I do. This is what I'm here to do. And you, you should be rejoicing, not murmuring. Heaven rejoices. 
say what I said last time, it's joy in the presence of the angels of God. I, I, I believe it is Jesus Christ that initiates the joy. He, he is the one that invites it. I mean, it's His work that is, it is, He is seeing the fruit of His labors. You know, sometimes there are things you see in children that adults lose. And then you realize there's something very Christ-like about it. I was thinking about it, thinking of this passage, and the children, they come in sometimes, and they, sh- they show me their, the things that they do, paintings and drawings and so on. And they, they, they come to me, and they show me, look, Daddy. And they have, they have joy in what they have done. They have joy in this, this piece. It's almost like they can see. They set out to do something draw a bird, paint it, or whatever. And they set out to do it, and, and when it's done, they kind of can see that they're, they're, there's a joy in, in what they have achieved. They're satisfied. Now, we get older, and we, some, some of us move into a sense of, yeah, you know, you do things, you move on to the next thing, and you never really stop and kind of show a sense of satisfaction and joy in the accomplishment of a project or a job or whatever. And I think, I think that's what's going on. Our, our Lord takes joy in the bringing to fruition that which He set out to do. What, what I've illustrated is with a very small, very kind of low-level illustration, but it gets to the same kind of heart, the, the emotion, the, the, the inherent desire to, to see the accomplishment of something you set out to do come to pass and find satisfaction and joy in it. Some parents at times are just like the Pharisees. They find no joy in what their children do. They bring them their little work and they just tear it up. Maybe don't even look at it. Don't even acknowledge it. Too busy face stuck on the phone or a laptop. Too busy doing something else to give the child attention. No joy in what they have achieved. But our Lord, our Lord finds joy. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He, he, is, he, is, he is set out to do a work. And when it comes to pass, listen, when a soul is converted, it's like, that's it. That's what I suffered for. That's what I condescended and took flesh for. That's what I endured all that hardness and difficulty and resentment and cruelty I, I, for this. And so he, he calls he calls, heaven, rejoice with me. Celebrate it. This is the most glorious activity. God, God working, intervening in the lives of lost sinners and bringing them from death to life, from the power of Satan to God, and doing a work that is lasting and can never perish and can never be separated from the love of God. My work is a work that is complete. It will never rot. It will never decay. It will never decline. It will never devalue. This that I have shed my blood for, this which I have given myself to accomplish, is coming to pass. And He delights, oh, across the countless millions of those for whom He died, every individual sinner. It's not just the big campaigns where... 3,000 went forward and responded to the Billy Graham crusade. Uh, No, no, it's not just like looking at numbers and and being glad about the big numbers. Each one, each one, those from the world, those in the church, he finds joy. Oh, what glorious truth this is. And so what what must the sinner do as we close? What must you do? You must repent. That's that's what brings heaven joy. You think God is there to service your joy, and certainly Christ does that by what He has accomplished. But you can actually, in one sense, bring joy into heaven itself 
by doing the one thing God commands you to do, repent. God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And Jesus says this is what brings about the joy of heaven when you repent. That means you have to understand what he's asking you to do. All that you would understand, repentance. It's like a bad word, isn't it? Don't, don't, don't say repent, preacher. No, no, don't do that. Give me nice things. Tell me just to ask Jesus into my heart. Well, well, the Bible, the Bible <laughs> repeatedly says that this is what you must do. Repent. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn away from from everything else in your life. If you look at it this way, because you say, well, is it faith or is it repentance? Of course, it's both. It's two sides of the same coin. But if, I was thinking about it. In one sense, it's like this. In your belief in Jesus Christ, you, you seize upon Him, right? You seize upon His promise to receive you, forgive your sin, wash it away. That's what you should do. Boys and girls, you need to do it. You seize upon Christ. But as you're seizing upon Christ, you ask yourself, is there anything else in my hand? Am I holding on to anything else? Or is there something else I want to keep in my life? Maybe a habit or, or something else. You, you, you want to keep that thing. Sometimes people respond and they, they, they say they believe in Jesus Christ, but they still have the alcohol in their hand or the drugs or the immorality or the watching pornography. Where it's still in the hand. It's there. And they're trying to seize on Christ with hands that are partly filled with this stuff. And you can't. You have to repent of that. You have to let go of it. You have to walk away from it. And then, with hands open, you seize on Christ and let Him alone be your grasp. He's the only one that can save. So you have done with everything else. Whatever you know consciously disobeys God, is rebellion against God, let go of it. Seize upon Christ. That's believing repentance. That is penitent faith. And that's what you need to do. Some of you don't have it. You don't have it. You want to know how I know you don't have it? At least in part. At least how I can make an assessment that maybe you don't have it. You have no joy. You have no joy. You have no joy in your heart that your sins are forgiven. And that the world out there had no interest in you, but Christ came and pursued you until he found. Until he found it. Till she found it. Wherever that took him. Whatever that meant, he kept on going until you were found. And you just spend the rest of your life, I can't believe it, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And you're amazed by it every day. Oh, may you be amazed. May you be amazed. May God give you grace to be truly amazed. Let's bow together in prayer. So our heads are bowed before the Lord. I'm perhaps speaking more to lost coins than I am lost sheep. You're not out in the world. You're not giving yourself to harlotry or various forms of great sin and corruption. You're found in the church. You're often found in the church. You may even read your Bible. You might even appreciate your Christian heritage, but you're not saved, and you need to be saved. You don't know when you're going to die, and once you're dead, it cannot be undone. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. It is time to seek the Lord now. And if, I, if only I could communicate the love of Christ to you, I wish, I wish I could. I wish you could see his heart of compassion that came to seek and to save sinners just like you. Pull you out of a state of condemnation. Pull you away from the brink of hell. Deliver you from all your fears and give you peace that passes understanding. Oh, seek him. Will you not seek him? Seek him now. If I can be of help to you, please seek me out after the service. Lord, I pray, bless thy word. 
We thank Thee for a seeking Savior. We thank Thee for one who, even though he was attacked for his very work of seeking, he continued on. He knew the reason he had come into the world, to seek and to save that which was lost. How grateful we are that he has found us and he keeps us. Gracious God, we pray, please may others come to know him. May they also know that though they were lost, they can be found. Lord, may it please thee then to gather them in, gather them in tonight. Hear then these are prayers, bless our fellowship, the food provided, our time together, make it, make it fruitful. And go with us the rest of this week, and as we have opportunity to spend time with family, make that fruitful also. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.